Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria. And I thought I would uh, finish off our series of talks on uh, communism. And um, again, there were so many requests uh, over the last year, especially for us to bring back uh, many of the recordings from Archbishop Sheen during the Second World War and a little bit after that. And uh, I think many of these talks, you will agree, are almost like he's speaking to us in the year 2022, uh, even though these talks were given in the 40s. And so I'm going to share with you um, a very popular talk, and I know that this talk's been featured on YouTube um, and other social media. Uh, It's a talk about the sign of our times. It's kind of what I'd like to call that famous prophecy that uh, Fulton Sheen gave in 1947 that uh, many people are revealing that uh, Fulton Sheen was right. (laughs) I say revealing, but um, I think a lot of times, you know, we truly can say that Fulton Sheen was a prophet for our time because many of the things that he spoke about have come true. And so this talk, The Sign of Our Times, uh, will really speak to your heart today. And I'm going to feature it at the beginning of this uh, one-hour broadcast. And after that, I'll make a little commentary, but then share with you, uh, again, a reflection about passion. And uh, again, it relates to uh, the revival of passion. And... um, You know, the communists, I think, when Fulton Sheen explains their philosophy, uh, it has a great deal of passion. They have a zeal for their mission. Now, it's not the correct mission, but still they have passion. And I think what he's going to try to encourage us is that we, as Catholics, come up to the mark and have a passion and a zeal for our faith to not be ashamed of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the church and living the sacramental life. And so, uh, again, who better to give us this lesson than the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And so may I invite you, as I always do, just to uh, sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a reflection entitled, The Sign of Our Times. Please enjoy. Friends, God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you, as they will be the concluding words on each broadcast. God love you means God is love, God loves you, and you ought to love God in return. 
It is very difficult to do justice to this subject of communism each Sunday in the 16 minutes allotted to me in this 30-minute program. So this year I have written a much fuller treatment of each broadcast, which will be sent free to you if you write in your request. Why is it that so few realize the seriousness of our present crisis? Partly because men do not want to believe their own times are wicked. Partly because it involves too much self-accusation. And principally because they have no standards outside of themselves to measure their times. Only those who live by faith really know what is happening in the world. And well may our Savior say to us what he said to the Sadducees and Pharisees in his time when they asked for a sign. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm, for the sky is red and lowering. You know then how to discern the face of the sky. Can you not know the signs of the times? Do we know the signs of our times? They point to two inescapable truths. The first of which is that we have come to the end of the post-Renaissance chapter of history which made man the measure of all things. The three basic dogmas of the modern world are dissolving before our very eyes. First, we are witnessing the liquidation of the economic man, or the assumption that man, who is a highly developed animal, has no other function in life than to produce and acquire wealth, and then, like the cattle in the pastures, be filled with years and die. Secondly, we are witnessing the liquidation of the idea of the natural goodness of man, who has no need of a god to give him rights, or a redeemer to salvage him from guilt because progress is automatic thanks to science, education, and evolution which will one day make man a kind of God. We are witnessing also the liquidation of rationalism or the idea that the purpose of human reason is not to discover the meaning and the goal of life, namely the salvation of a soul, but to devise new technical advances to make on this earth a city of man to replace the city of God. It may very well be that the historical liberalism of our modern generations is only a transitional era in history between a civilization which once was Christian and one which will be definitely anti-Christian. And the second great truth to which the signs of the times portend is that we are definitely at the end of a non-religious era of civilization. By that I mean one which regarded religion as an addendum to life, a pious extra, a morale builder for the individual but of no social relevance, and God is a silent partner whose name was used by the firm to give respectability but who had nothing to say about how the business should be run. And the new era into which we are entering is what might be called the religious phase of human history. 
Do not misunderstand me. By religious, we do not mean that men will turn to God, but rather that the indifference to the absolute which characterized the liberal phase of civilization will be succeeded by a passion for the absolute. From now on, the struggle will not be for colonies and national rights, but for the souls of men. The battle lines are being clearly drawn. The basic issues are no longer in doubt. From now on, men will divide themselves into two religions, understood again as surrender to an absolute. The conflict of the future is between an absolute who is the God-man and an absolute which is the man-God. Between the God who became man and the man who makes himself God. Between brothers in Christ and comrades in Antichrist. But the Antichrist will not be so called. Otherwise he would have no followers. He will wear no red tights, nor vomit sulfur, nor carry a spear, nor wave an arrowed tail as Mephistopheles in Faust. Nowhere in sacred scripture do we find warrant for the popular myth that the devil is a buffoon who was dressed like the first red. Rather, is he described as a fallen angel, as a prince of this world, whose business it is to tell us that there is no other world. His logic is simple. If there is no heaven, there is no hell. If there is no hell, there is no sin. If there is no sin, there is no judge. And if there is no judgment, then evil is good, and good is evil. But above all these descriptions, our Lord tells us that he will be so much like himself that he will deceive even the elect. And certainly no devil that we have ever seen in picture books could deceive the elect. How will he come in this new age to win followers to his religion? He will come disguised as the great humanitarian. He will talk peace, prosperity, and plenty, not as means to lead us to God, but as ends in themselves. He will write books on the new idea of God to suit the way people live, induce faith in astrology, so as to make not the will but the stars responsible for our sins. He will explain guilt away psychologically as repressed sex, Make men shrink in shame if their fellow men say they are not broad-minded and liberal. He will identify tolerance with indifference to right and wrong. He will foster more divorces under the disguise that another partner is vital. He will increase love for love and decrease love for persons. He will invoke religion to destroy religion. He will even speak of Christ and say that he was the greatest man who ever lived. His mission, he will say, will be to liberate men from the servitudes of superstition and fascism, which he will never define. But in the midst of all his seeming love for humanity, his glib talk of freedom and equality, he will have one great secret, which he will tell no one. He will not believe in God. And because his religion will be brotherhood without the fatherhood of God, 
He will deceive even the elect. He will set up a counter church, which will be the ape of the church because he, the devil, is the ape of God. It will be the mystical body of the Antichrist that will in all externals resemble the church as the mystical body of Christ. In desperate need for God, he will induce modern man in his loneliness and frustration to hunger more and more for membership in his community that will give man enlargement of purpose without any need of personal amendment and without the admission of personal guilt. These are days in which the devil has been given a particularly long rope. Evil hour, when the shepherd may be struck and the sheep dispersed. Has the church made preparations for just such a dark night in the decree of the Holy Father outlining the conditions on which a papal election may now be held outside of the city of Rome. Men who know history have seen these dark days coming. As far back as 1842, 105 years ago, Heine the German poet wrote, Communism, though little discussed now, and loitering in hidden garrets on miserable straw pallets, as the dark hero destined for a great, if temporary, role in the modern tragedy. Wild, gloomy times are roaring toward us, and a prophet wishing to write a new apocalypse would have to invent entirely new beasts, beasts so terrible that St. John's older animals would be like gentle doves and cupids in comparison. The gods are veiling their faces in pity on the children of men, their long-time charges. The future smells of Russian leather, blood, godlessness, and many whippings. And I should advise our grandchildren to be born with very thick skins on their backs. At an 1842, well indeed may we be warned. For the first time in history, our age has witnessed the persecution of the Old Testament by the Nazis and the persecution of the New Testament by the Communists. Anyone who has anything to do with God is hated today. Whether his vocation was to announce his divine son, Jesus Christ, as the Jew or to follow him as the Christian. Because the signs of our times point to a struggle between absolutes, we may expect the future to be a time of trial for two reasons. Firstly, to stop disintegration. Godlessness would go on and on and on if there were no catastrophes. What death is to an individual, that catastrophe is to an evil civilization. The interruption of life and for the civilization the interruption of its godlessness. Why did God station an angel with the flaming sword of the garden of paradise after the fall if it was not to prevent our first parents from entering again and eating of the tree of life which if they ate would have immortalized their guilt 
And God will not allow unrighteousness to become eternal. He permits revolution, disintegration, and chaos to come as reminders that our thinking has been wrong. Our dreams have been unholy. Moral truth is vindicated by the ruin that follows when it has been repudiated. The chaos of our times is the strongest negative argument that could ever be advanced for Christianity. Catastrophe reveals that evil is self-defeating and that we cannot turn from God as we have without hurting ourselves. And the second reason why a crisis must come is in order to prevent a false identification of the church and the world. Our Lord intended that those who were his followers would be different in spirit from those who were not. But this line of demarcation has been blotted out. Instead of black and white, there's only a blur. Mediocrity and compromise characterize the lives of many Christians. They read the same novels as modern pagans, educate their children in the same godless way, listen to the same commentators who have no other standard than judging today by yesterday and tomorrow by today, allow pagan practices to creep into family life such as divorce and remarriage. There are not wanting so-called Catholic labor leaders recommending communists for Congress or Catholic writers who accept presidencies in communist front organizations to instill totalitarian ideas into movies. There's no longer the conflict and the opposition which ought to characterize us. We are influencing the world less than the world influences us. There is no apartness. We who are sent out to establish a center of health have caught the disease and therefore have lost the power to heal. And since the gold is mixed with an alloy, the entirety must be thrust into the furnace that the dross may be burned away. And the value of the trial will be to set us apart. Evil catastrophe must come to reject us, to despise us, to hate us, to persecute us, and then, then we shall define our loyalties, affirm our fidelities, and state on whose side we stand. Our quantity indeed will decrease, but our quality will increase. It is not for the church that we fear, but for the world. We tremble not that God may be dethroned, but that barbarism may reign. And three practical suggestions then for the times, as Christians realize that a moment of crisis is not a time of despair, but of opportunity. We were born in crises, in defeat, the crucifixion. And once we recognize that we are under divine wrath, we become eligible for divine mercy. The very disciplines of God create hope. The thief on the right came to God by a crucifixion. And secondly, Catholics ought to stir up their faith, hang a crucifix in their home, remind them that they have a cross to carry. Gather your family together every night to recite the rosary. Go to daily mass. Make the holy hour daily in the presence of our Eucharistic Lord. 
and particularly in parishes where pastors are conscious of the world's need and therefore conduct services of reparation. And finally, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, Americans, all of us, must realize that the world is summoning us to heroic efforts at spiritualization. It is not a unity of religion we plead, for that is impossible when purchased at the cost of the unity of truth, but a unity of religious people, wherein each marches separately according to the light of his conscience, but strikes together for the moral betterment of the world. The forces of evil are united. The forces of good are divided. We may not be able to meet in the same pew. Would to God that we did, but we can meet on our knees. You may be very sure that no sordid compromises nor carrying of waters on both shoulders will see you through. Those who have the faith had better keep in the state of grace. And those who have neither had better begin to find out what they mean. For in the coming age, there will be only one way to stop your trembling knees, and that will be to get down on them and pray. Pray to Michael. Michael, the prince of the morning who conquered Lucifer, would make himself a god. When the world once cracked because of a sneer in heaven, he rose up and dragged down from the seven heavens the pride that would look down on the Most High. And pray too. Pray to Our Lady. And say to her it was to thee. It was given the power to crush the head of the serpent who lied to men that they would be like unto gods. And mayest thou, who didst find Christ when he was lost for three days, find him again. For our world that has lost him, give to the senile incontinence of our verbiage the word. And as thou didst form the word in thy womb, form him in our own hearts. Lady of the blue of heaven, in these dark days light our arms. Give back to us the light of the world, that a light may shine even in these days of darkness. God love. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends. Welcome back to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And I can tell you um, the amount of mail that we receive about Fulton Sheen's uh, talks on communism and his reflections from World War II, uh, it's astounding. I, I knew these would be popular, and I knew they would strike a chord with everyone, uh, but uh, maybe not to this extent. And um, I know I shared last week uh, with you um, an interview with Julia Maloney, and uh, she's the spokesperson for Tan Books, and they uh, re-released uh, Fulton Sheen's book, Communism and the Conscience of the West. And uh, that book is uh, actually turning out to be a bestseller again. And uh, many people are uh, just wanting their own copies so that they could reference um, Sheen's wisdom. And it's always good to have those uh, books that 
kind of explain uh, what's really going on. Um, and I think this is what Fulton Sheen does. He he lists the facts and the statistics and the history. And, uh, you know, you just uh, read the chapters in not just that book, but all of his books, and you... You're, you're getting a catechesis. I, I like to say that. Uh, of course, Fulton Sheen, being a bishop, uh, again, wanted to share the faith and teach the faith. And he said so many times that his greatest joy uh, is the propagation of the faith, to share this great love story with the world that God took on human flesh, dwelt among us, and gave his life up as a ransom to save us. And... Um, he wanted to share that with uh, every person he would encounter. Of course, he traveled the world and, um, of course, was the head of the Pontifical Mission Society uh, for many years. And so he had a great zeal for souls. Uh, but I think in these talks, he's warning us, as a good father would, to uh, look at the signs of the times, to see evil to uh, know that uh, we can defeat evil as Christ did with the power of his cross, the power of his name, and the power of his precious blood. But of course, he uh, reminds us to go to the Blessed Virgin Mary, to trust in her, to pray. And, and I, I love how Sheen is so passionate about uh, encouraging us to pray an hour each day. And he calls out Jews, Catholics, and Protestants to say their prayers, uh, to get down on our knees together, and to pray for God's holy will to be done. Um, so I think we have to kind of take these um, challenges that uh, Fulton Sheen gives us and put them into practice. I know I'll be doing that, that's for sure. Uh, but again, uh, happy to have uh, uh, Julia Maloney uh, to share a few of her insights. Um, and of course, she uh, gives interviews all the time on, um, you know, especially that book on communism and the conscience of the West. Uh, I know for myself, I uh, released uh, last year uh, a book called War and Peace, an anthology. And of course, that included uh, five of Sheen's books from the war years. And, uh, of course, people have um, really enjoyed um, having these um, lost books republished. And that's been one of my joys over the years, is to take these lesser-known works of Archbishop Sheen and to republish them and to get them back into circulation. And it's been a real joy. Um, I know that um, I've had the privilege, I think, and I call it a privilege, to put together five books um, with the help of Sophia Institute Press uh, to share uh, Sheen's messages on the cross, uh, his writings on prayer, uh, the sacraments, uh, God's love, and of course, uh, war and peace. So, And of course, all those books are available through our good friends at Sophia Institute Press, and you can find them on the web. And I think, you know, again, always do that Google search of Archbishop Sheen and uh, type in the word anthology, and you'll find five different uh, books, uh, all on different themes. So uh, God has been good to me, and of course, I pray that he'll be good to you. And I, I can't uh, 
recommend Archbishop Sheen enough that uh, everyone needs to read his books and to watch his videos and to listen to his talks. And I want to thank you personally for joining me today here on Radio Maria to do that. All right, I'm going to share now this reflection. Uh, it was towards the end of uh, Fulton Sheen's uh, 1947 series uh, where he talked about the passion of the communists, their um, zeal for their mission. And of course, he wants to have us uh, have a similar passion, but in a good light. And so this reflection is titled Communism and the Revival of Passion. And uh, looking forward to sharing that with you now. And so, as I always do, I just say, sit back and relax and enjoy this great communicator, this real blessing from God, uh, the Venerable Sheen, as he teaches us again about communism and the revival of passion. Please enjoy. Friends, everyone must admire the zeal and the sacrifice and the fire of communists in spreading their philosophy of life. There is no doubt that they show more spirit in trying to start a world revolution than we do in trying to prevent it. Whence comes this passion? And how did we lose ours? These questions we hope to answer in this broadcast. About the only time we ever hear the word passion now is in a movie or a modern novel. But passion was once something real in the world. It was born on the fringes of the Roman Empire, on a hill called Calvary, and on a Friday called Good. That passion was fire, and love and enthusiasm, showing itself first as tongues of fire on Pentecost, and then as martyrdom, mysticism, missionary activity, and as an apostolate that swept off the world the Greek ideal of moderation and Roman indifference to the truth. And from generation to generation, this torch of passion was passed on until today there are millions who so love their Lord that all the blandishments of earth could not make them turn from that possession which makes all other possessions vain. This passion made some want to give everything to the divine lover, and thus was born the vow of poverty. It also inspired the young to give the best they had, and since the best was not of their body but of their souls, there was born the vow of chastity. It inspired others to dispossess their own wills, so as to be identified with the will of the one loved, and thus was born the vow of obedience. And that love of God, which Thompson called passionless passion, wild tranquility, still continues to dominate a few of the faithful. But as far as the world is concerned, passion has passed out of existence. Our fires have gone out. There's no more zeal. There is only broad-mindedness which is considered the greatest of all virtues. The man who cannot make up his mind about anything is called broad. And he who has discovered a few principles to guide his life is condemned as narrow. Tolerance has degenerated into indifference. 
and today it is generally held that it makes no difference what you believe. Right and wrong, truth and error have equal rights. We trot out Christ and Barabbas and allow a vote to determine which is innocent. There's no need then of counting the ballots once you allow people to choose between good and evil. Justice will always be sent to death. G. Studdard Kennedy compared our Lord coming to Golgotha and coming to the modern, broad-minded city of Birmingham in England. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep for those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they simply passed him by. They never hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Still Jesus cried, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And still it rained, the winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the streets without a soul to see, then Jesus crouched against a wall and sighed for Calvary. Yes, the crucifixion was more bearable than broad-mindedness, which was neither hot nor cold, and therefore which God said he would vomit from his mouth. But think not that the world could long live without fire and passion. Why did Europe at the close of the First World War adopt Nazism, fascism, and communism? Brown, black, and red fascisms never could have engulfed Germany, Italy, and Russia if they did not have some basic appeal and did not satisfy a long, pent-up yearning. The Western man might go on with his indifference to religion. It is not a stable condition. Tolerance will give way to cynicism and cynicism to persecution. No civilization can remain long indifferent to religion. Eventually, men will either love it or hate it. And the Nazis, the fascists, and the communists made the decisive steps. They were not faint-hearted. If the Western world would believe in individual atheism, they would be bold enough to make atheism official and put it into practice. It was a revolt against the half-hearted materialism in the name of total materialism. The only difference between these three forms of totalitarianism was that the Nazis absorbed the person in the race the fascists in the nation, and the communists in the class. All three systems represented revolts against the disintegration of the world. And never will we be able to understand our times if we naively think of these systems as the work of a few gangsters or the creation of a pack of criminals. The appeal of Nazism, fascism, and communism was principally negative. 
They were protests against a milk and water liberalism, a spineless indifference to causes, a failure to recognize that nothing was evil enough to hate and nothing was good enough to die for. The people of Europe wanted something they had lost in losing their faith. They wanted a faith, a religion, a belief and an absolute. They wanted dogmas, infallibility, discipline, authority, obedience, and sacrifice. They wanted to relieve the boredom that came from a false sense of freedom or license, so they flocked to a dictator. They wanted a compulsory organization for the chaos resulting from liberalism, which judged progress by the height of the pile of discarded moral inhibitions. They wanted pilgrimages, and since they wrecked the Church of the Virgin, they would make them to tractor factories. They wanted to believe there was something evil in the world. For some, it was the Jew. For others, the capitalists. For others, Christians. For others, Parliament. But at least it made them feel that life had a purpose and that sacrifice could be made for the sake of the party or the class or the nation by receiving a bullet in the back. Passion returned. Fires burned again. Though it was a passion for a vague collectivity which Moloch-like cancelled out personal dignity, disqualified all moral values and denied all celestial loyalties. And totalitarianism and particularly communism gave the European man a religion a counter-church to supplant a church, a faith to fight a faith, the inspired gospel of Marx for the abandoned gospel of Mark. Germany, Italy, and Russia were right in wanting a change. They were wrong in their solutions. The prodigal son was right in being hungry. He was wrong in living on husk. And that terrible void which filled Europe with totalitarian systems at the close of World War I now exists in the victorious nations at the close of this war. Why is the American youth inclined to be revolutionary? Not for a bad reason, I tell you, but for a good one. Our youth wants an absolute to take the place of the relative. It sees the inconsistency between sitting in a classroom and hearing a professor say that there's no distinction between good and evil, and then being inducted into the armed services to die because there is a distinction between good and evil. They see that life is vain if they have to go on through the night as sleepwalkers striking matches while the rest of the world is lighting torches. Very simply, modern youth wants what Europe wanted at the close of the last world war. Passion, fire, Faith, enthusiasm. And our civilization today is in the state described by our blessed Lord in the parable of the empty house. We have driven the Nazi devil from the house of Europe. But because God in his justice did not occupy that house, seven other devils worse than the first have come to dwell there. We are ill prepared to meet this new evil passion because we of the Western democracies have no faith, no philosophy of life, no common purpose. We knew what we hated when we went to war, but we cannot agree on what we ought to love now that the war is over.
Our emptiness makes us a prey to communism. We are apt to take it as an alcoholic will take an extra drink to put him on his feet. Communism fills the void, though it fills it as a vulture might fill the nest of a robin. Communism would never have had an appeal in any other age when people were Christian. And if it appeals now, it is because though we have turned from the divine light, we have not lost the need of it. But like moths burn ourselves in the tiny flame of totalitarian candles and firebrands. How shall this passion, this fire, and this enthusiasm for the new religion of communism be met? Very simply by recognizing that a passion can be conquered only by a passion. It takes a divine faith to meet a totalitarian faith, a philosophy of life to combat a philosophy of life, a total religion to conquer a totalitarian anti-religion. At the present time, all that we of the Western world have to offer against this new passion is a change in editorial policy, a shift in national moods as revealed by a Gallup poll, and an occasional change in a cabinet member. Why is it that our diplomats have been helpless before the exponents and the apostles of this new passion? Certainly not because they are wanting inner desire to per perpetuate decency, order, and freedom in the world, but simply because their position has been illogical from the beginning. They and all of us of the Western world have been attempting to preserve the fruits of Christianity after having surrendered the roots. And this cannot be done. We are trying to preserve respect for the dignity of man, human freedom, the inviolability of human rights, after having surrendered a belief in God who gives man a dignity and who alone is the source of those rights. The position of communism is stronger. It says you deny the fruits of Christianity. Why not, therefore, with us reject the basis too? What shall be our answer? Well, the situation resolves itself down to this. Communists have the zeal, but no truth. We have the truth, but no zeal. They have the heat, but no light. We have the light, but no heat. They have the passion, but no ideals. We have the ideals, but no passion. Neither of us is right. They sin against the light, we sin against love. It is we who claim to be Christians. It is we who claim to believe in the existence of God and the moral law, and who nevertheless act not out of these beliefs who are to be condemned. Our crime is our unfulfilled Christian duty, our sprinkling the fires of passion with the cold waters of indifference, our mediocrity, which blinds us to the fact that the day of broad-mindedness is over and that all humanity today is in search of a soul. And whence it may be asked, comes this passion of communism for evil, for destruction, for violence, and for sacrifice? The answer is, 
These enormous sacrifices on the part of communists are possible only because of the Christian influence still left in the world and because the shadow of the cross still falls across their path. Their passion is real only because they have caricatured the passion of our Lord who laid down his life for love of us. If this anti-religious passion of communism ever succeeded in blotting Christianity out of the world, which is impossible, then communism itself would be impossible, for it would no longer be able to interpret service in terms of a higher purpose. No longer would it have a great passion to imitate, no longer a great love to pervert. Their anti-religious fervor comes only from religion. Their blind obedience is a parody on submission to divine truth. Their atheism would be silly if there were no God, for they would all be like Don Quixote's dueling with imaginary windmills. It is only the reality of God which gives fire to their atheism. They would be crazy if God were a figment of the imagination, but they are not crazy because they are fighting against something just as real as the thrust of a sword or an embrace. And the truth of this statement is borne out by the fact that as communism succeeds in destroying religion in any one country of the world, all of the communists lose enthusiasm. They settle down as spineless capitalists in czarist palaces, fulminating against capitalism from their ivory towers. It is the reality of Christianity which makes sense of their anti-Christianity. For their devil, the devil himself would not be so busy if there was no God. There's no salvation against communism, therefore, unless we step out of our lethargy, our indifference, and re-enkindle in America the fires of religion. And what I have said before, I repeat, Communism will not be overcome first by defending capitalism. Second, it will not be overcome by hate and a purely negative or anti-communistic attitude. For how can we be against something unless we are for something? And thirdly, communism will not be overcome by any economic readjustment. For communism is not an economic system but a philosophy of life that is bent on destroying the last vestiges of freedom in the Western world. And least of all, communism will not be destroyed by going to war against it. For communism thrives on chaos as disease thrives on dirt. But it will be overcome by a rebirth of passion for God and love of neighbor. Karl Marx once said, where atheism begins, there communism begins. That means that every capitalist, every hater of communism, every economist and politician who is opposed to communism, who this day has failed to worship God and increase the love of neighbor in his heart, has made his contribution to communism. Remember, there's nothing that ever happens in the world that does not first happen in souls. I tell you, and I have never been more earnest in my life, 
We had all better get back again to God. What can you do? Well, if you are a Catholic, you can offer yourself to your parish to spend a holy hour with your fellow men in all-night adoration of our Lord in the Eucharist in reparation for the sins of the world. How many pastors who are listening to me now are willing to start nocturnal adoration? Before such love, communism will evaporate as fog before the sun. And if you are a Jew or a Protestant, then you can spend an hour a day in prayer according to the light of your own conscience. A great crisis is upon us. And we cannot, like the apostle in the garden, substitute action for prayer by drawing swords. This is the answer to what can I do. You can pray. And these prayers that I am asking you to say an hour a day will leap across space and time and appear in other minds and other hearts and other lands. As our Lord said, what you whisper in secret shall be shouted from the housetops. Today it is only a prayer. Tomorrow it will be a shout of joy. And the day after tomorrow, the return of peace to the world in the glorious rebirth of the passion of divine love. God love you. And now we invite you to join Monsignor Sheen as he offers this prayer. Sovereign Lord and Master, we fought so long we forgot what we were fighting for. When we left thy light, like tiny gods, we quarreled in the twilight of our petty rivalries. Give us in thy tender mercy the peace we do not deserve. We pray for our president, our congress, and our courts, that they may sustain and defend religion and morality without which no nation can long endure. Save us most of all from ourselves. Restore love to our broken homes, the joy of a good conscience to our frustrated lives, the four freedoms to the enslaved peoples of the world, and to our foolishness. Give the wisdom of thy ways. Make us new men and light our lamps. In particular, we pray for the people of Russia. We consecrate them to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, that individually and as a nation they may realize their fondest hopes and know thee freely and openly, O Christ, whom they now are forced to love and serve in secret, not for our worthiness, but for thy mercy. Grant us these petitions, O Christ Jesus, Son of the living God. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, I hope you enjoyed this series of talks uh, that Fulton Sheen has given on communism and, of course, his reflections during World War II. And uh, I will be coming back, of course, next week, but uh, 
again, more of a, a lighter presentation, I think, as we are getting ready to uh, enter in the Advent season in a few weeks. And so uh, we'll turn our focus to the manger scene and, of course, uh, Sheen's reflection on Advent. And um, again, he made many uh, books and uh, pamphlets on Advent and, of course, the uh, great joy that he had in sharing uh, that message. And so uh, we'll be sharing those with you over the next uh, few weeks, of course, during the Advent season. But for now, uh, we are in the month of November and we've been praying for the holy souls in purgatory, especially those of our family members. And so uh, I just think of these uh, great opportunities we have to, um, again, build our uh, circle of friends. And the holy souls in purgatory can become and are our friends. They can intercede for us as we intercede for them. And uh, Archbishop Sheen uh, wrote about the holy souls in purgatory and mentioned that uh, when we get to heaven... Uh, we will be greeted by uh, just, I want to say, a great multitude of souls. And, uh, you know, we may ask them who you are. And uh, they will say, we were the souls in purgatory that you prayed for and were in heaven and were welcoming you into heaven. And so, uh, again, Fulton Sheen was uh, telling us in a beautiful way, keep praying for those holy souls and uh, they will help you too. And so, uh, again, let us not miss that opportunity here in this month of November to pray for the holy souls. Eternal rest grant of them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May their souls and the souls of the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. My dear friends, I want to thank you for all of your support and your financial gifts to Radio Maria. And I want to thank you personally for the many of you who have supported my humble little website. It's called bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, back in the year 2012, I uh, sat down with a friend and we made the website. Uh, We found all the YouTube videos we could of Archbishop Sheen on television and his lectures. And we put them all under one Um, I guess, one um, umbrella. And uh, again, I I searched the net and found all of his audio recordings and uh, found a number of his um, digital libraries. And so uh, everything on there, you can click the mouse and just watch Sheen for hours, uh, listen to him for hours and hours, literally hundreds of hours, and of course read some of his uh, pamphlets and his books uh, all for free. And um, you know, salvation is free, and I always thought Fulton Sheen should be free too. And so uh, please visit the website, bishopsheentoday.com, and uh, browse uh, our web, and of course enjoy the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And of course, there's a little book tab there. You can always order a book or two, and um, again, your uh, support of uh, purchasing books helps us uh, in our apostolic work. And so that's great. All right, and of course, Christmas is coming up, so uh, good gift gift idea to give a Fulton Sheen book or two to the the special people on your list. And so uh, there we go. All right, uh, let's pray. You, I would ask you to pray for me, and please know that I pray for you each day with our team of volunteers here. And so, uh, my dear friends, until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.